0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm Monica Bellovin. What is going on musically and sonically when you hear something like this? That familiar trope. Is called a suspension. It is often found at the end of pieces, as with the one we just heard, but the basic pattern can occur or be used throughout a musical score. A suspension is an intensification in the transition between two different chords. The harmony of the first chord overlaps with the harmony of the second chord, often by a single note of the first one being held long as the rest of it drops off and the second chord begins. This overlap of two unusually proximal harmonies is what creates that middle section of dissonance. The suspension ends in what is called a resolution. To frame the resolution, the lone note of the first chord ends as a sonic struggle settles, and the notes of the new triumphant final chord rise in emphasis. The typical effect aimed for is one of dialectical tension, generating a release. thesis. Antithesis and synthesis. Listen to it again here and bring your awareness to how you yourself feel as these tones move through. Most people experience a mimetic, sympathetic response where the tension and release within the competing tones is reflected upon them as listeners. Striving for and instrumentalizing this mimetic phenomenon isn't just Aristotelian poetics, but at the liquid core of any expressionist project, whether it be in music, in art, or design. If an environment can influence a person to feel more or less tense or inspired, even more or less alive, then one of architecture's inbuilt challenges is laid bare to us. If the environment will inevitably play its influence out upon the feelings of groups and individuals, then the question raised for architects and users of buildings alike is how should architecture resonate with us? Are these tones of architectural perception that we all feel but cannot yet observe, even to the degree to which we quantify audible harmony, similar enough within each person to make their scoring meaningful? and worth our time and effort. And so an intellectual suspension, in the shape of conditions needing arguments that must be yet resolved, is implicit to the legacy that the expressionists left us. Today we start our survey of the painter Vasily Kandinsky, his theories on art, and his time at the Bauhaus. In his book, The Bauhaus Group, Six Masters of Modernism, Nicholas Fox Weber incorrectly attributes Kandinsky with coining the term synesthetic the honor corresponds in fact to the 19th century American doyenne of science that was Mary Whiteon Kalkins given the recent resurgence of academic interest in the subject you are probably acquainted with the concept of synesthesia as referring to a crossover or synthesis of the senses a sound can be seen or the vowels are color-coded. Kandinsky was himself not just a synesthete, but an exceedingly minutious one, who consistently strived to discover and define what we would like to call rigorous homologies, reliable and repeatable links between associations of music, shape, and color. As you would argue, in his 1910 book on the spiritual in art, Kandinsky fervently believed that the constant breaking of an unbounded series of obstacles was crucial to maintaining a high-fidelity connection between the spiritual or the sensorial and the material that art used to invoke it. As you can likely hear, and also inwardly feel in that suspension we played, the synthesis, or the progressive resolution in itself, is the expression of a tension or argument resolving in one chord after another. Analogous tensions were exuberantly played out at the Bauhaus as ideological feuds between various instructors. Paul Klee, the unclassifiable painter that Groffius recruited to promote gainful relationships with museums and the art world, had for years been a close friend of Kandinsky's. In December of 1921, on the very month in which Kandinsky wrote to Klee from Berlin, to ask about moving to Weimar, Claire described the combative state of affairs at the Staatliches Bauhaus as a positive. It's a good thing that such diverse forces coexist in our Bauhaus. I also approve of the fact that these forces fight against one another, if the result of fighting is real creations. Johannes Itten was about to leave the school. Where Grofius thought the purpose of the Bauhaus was to lead its students toward making built designs, Itten felt the purpose of design was to lead its students to enlightenment. The center would not hold. Itten's waning influence would soon overlap for a time with that of his replacement, and so the transcendental harmony of the Expressionist project would pass by way of suspension from one artist to another. The dissonance that would arise during that moment of imbrication between the outwardly similar, yet utterly distinct theories of Itten and Kandinsky marked one of the greater turning points in the school's trajectory, and as a result, in the articulation, understanding, and eventual application of modernist design. To the Bauhaus, Vasily Vasilyevich Kandinsky came in from the east and the north, Though he spent the better part of his career in Munich, during the Halcyon years of its Jugendstil, he stayed in Berlin after leaving his revolutionary academic post in Soviet Russia. Before being invited to Weimar, he had spent his earliest childhood in Moscow. The Kandinskys were Russian Orthodox, and the artist remained a believer and a guarded Slavophile for the rest of his life. Born in eighteen sixty six To a firmly bourgeois tea merchant and his wife, Kandinsky was a teenager at the time of Czerny Peredel, or Black Repartition Party, a radical reform movement that had an electrifying effect on students of that generation. While he was too young to ride that wave, he was just old enough, upon leaving Russia, to be caught by the luxuriant flash of Art Nouveau that most of his somewhat younger Bauhaus colleagues Had spent their whole careers reacting to. Either because or in despite of these several transitions, Kandinsky ranked among those fortunate individuals who come of age participating in one era, but rather than becoming obscured, defined by the past, or simply rejected, then help define the times of those who follow on their heels. Kandinsky grew up speaking German. His maternal grandmother, Elizaveta Ivanovna Tikeva, was from the Baltic region, and she would spoil him with German fairy tales. A fascination with the mystical, the magical, and horses would be evinced throughout his artistic career. The painter would write of color and form, bestirring powerful emotions in him from early childhood. Bright colors would excite him. Black was deeply upsetting. When he was three, he went to Italy with his parents and the governess where he was confined to a black carriage. His description of the scene is frankly Stygian. Steps leading down to black water, on which floats a frightening long black boat with a black box in the middle. I bawled my head off. The color black would play a role in his novitiate efforts as an artist. By the age of five, his family was in Odessa, accompanied by an aunt who liked to help him with painting. He was making a watercolour of a horse. She prudently warned the boy to ask for help before he ventured to use black, because watercolour always bleeds colour and black has more pigment than any, making it the hardest to control. As she left the room, he soon got to the point of wanting to add black as he became impatient for her to return. I thought, if I make the hooves really black... They were bound to be completely true to life. I put as much black in my brush as it would hold. An instant, and I was looking at four black, disgusting, ugly spots, quite foreign to the paper, on the feet of the horse. I was in despair and felt cruelly punished. But this feeling of revulsion also fascinated him. Later the prospect of putting black on the canvas would still put the fear of God into me. In following episodes, we will examine the recurrent role of black as it expresses itself in both his art and his aesthetic theory. He bought his first set of oil paints at age 13, with money saved from his allowance. Art was his passion, but he took a traditionally pragmatic route at the University of Moscow, eventually becoming a law and economics professor. Though he was offered the chair of the Department of Roman Law at the University of Dorpat at the age of 30, he was convinced his life stood at a crisis point. All through law and economics, he had never stopped painting, and when academics demanded a commitment of him, he chose to dive into the artistic and social ferment of Munich instead. When he first arrived in southern Germany, Kandinsky studied under Franz von Stuck, the notable Jugendstil painter, best known for his grisly glittering rendering of Salome bordering cosmic apotheosis. Then there is also The Sin, a painting in which a raven-haired beauty appears at first to be cloaked only in her hair and a black python, until the observer's penetrating gaze discerns a robe on her that's blacker than the outer blackness. Since Kandinsky's eventual theory of spirit Harped on the importance of breaking through barriers as pivotal to spiritual and artistic development, one wonders how enthralled he must have been by his old master's work, in which the black that rattled his imagination was so deeply prevalent. Flaring his Nietzschean stripes, Kandinsky wrote in On the Spiritual in Art of how, when following the progress of the spirit in a culture that's dying while birthing a new one, Those who first glimpse light must also be the ones to part the inky curtain. Deeper becomes the misery of these blind and terrified guides and their followers, tormented and unnerved by fear and doubt, prefer to this gradual darkening the final sudden leap into the blackness. This is nihilism of the highest octane. But rather than use it to propel heated rhetoric, as with the futurists, or to spin in sweeping circles like the astringent nonsense of Dada, Kandinsky was fully determined to capture the rare sparks that could set this fuel afire. By the end of his career, many were convinced that he had succeeded in this effort, with his Bauhaus work as proof. Yet whether he was truly successful or rather extremely convincing remains an open question. The way towards his utterly unique visual statements, as he moved past Art Nouveau and into burgeoning expressionism, was, intriguingly enough, through sound. While Kandinsky wrote of how all sorts of different sense data, sound, shape, color, held intertwined associations for him, not too different from ours, the manner in which he describes how Fackner's Lohengrin triggered extremely complex visual ideations of the Moscow twilight in him is decidedly peculiar. As he tells it, this was more than Gesamtkunstwerk. In Lohengrin, total art had kindled total spirit. The violins, the deep tones of the basses, and especially the wind instruments, embodied for me... All the power of that pre-nocturnal hour. I saw all my colors in my mind. They stood before my eyes. Wild, almost crazy lines were sketched in front of me. But these garish revelations would hold more for him, and he hoped for the world, than mere fascination. In 1908, he bought a copy of the book Potforms by Annie Besant and Charles Webster Leadbeater, British proponents of the Theosophical Society, an association wishing to explore the spiritual realm apart from the constraining dogmas of any specific religion or sect. Thought forms, or tulpas, as they are called in Sanskrit, are proposed to be physical objects created and manifested by pure mental energy. For Kandinsky, This concept must have articulated the ambitions of the Expressionist movement and lent substance to his own synesthetic visions. After all, what is art? What indeed is design, but a realized thought? Of course, this formulation raises the question of autonomy. Should these embodied ideas arise from stimuli already in the world, as is the case with humanist-based design? Or should they be inspired by other ideas, which is the standpoint proposed by architectural autonomy? Though this conceptual stem wouldn't split into opposing branches until later in the 20th century, the offshoots would prove to be important. In 1910, the year in which On the Spiritual in Art was published, Kandinsky completed his first abstract watercolour. From that point onwards, he would use his art to explore how physically present form interacted with internal feeling and perception. If Virginia Woolf had been sufficiently aware of him as an artist, his jump into abstraction may well have suggested to her sufficient reason to pin down a statement as specific as, On or about December 1910, human character changed. By the time she wrote that essay in 1924, Kandinsky's theory had been published in English for more than a decade and the art of the newly minted Bauhaus professor was long since famous around the world. When Kandinsky was appointed to the Bauhaus in 1922 his fame preceded him more than it did any other instructor as the art world had marked the school as notable and or up and coming when Grofius had brought clay on board Securing the presence of Vasily Kandinsky, known to all as the father of abstract art, meant that the little school in Weimar would now be impossible to ignore. Join us next time as we follow Kandinsky's quest from thought to form on Lapsus Lima.